Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. People who do bad things sometimes believe they're doing it for the best of motives. For the very first time, the greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers helping us to understand what makes a monster. The following interview with Dr. Adrian Needs was recorded in August 2019 for Crime and Investigation's TV series, Making a Monster. A forensic psychologist at the University of Portsmouth, Dr. Needs spent 14 years working in Her Majesty's prison service, rising to the rank of principal psychologist. Dr. Needs has worked in high-security prisons such as Wakefield, Full Sutton and Hull Special Unit. Here, Dr. Needs discusses Robert Maudsley. Although he has not directly worked with the serial killer, Dr. Needs' insight complements that of Professor Bob Johnson, who worked directly with Maudsley and is featured in a previous episode. Caution, the subject matter of this interview contains graphic descriptions and is often very disturbing. I think something that stands out with Robert Maudsley is the extreme nature of his early environment. I think one of the consequences of being locked up is that, well, he could probably only contrast it with how his life had been before his parents had reclaimed him from the children's home. So he would have missed the, well, more normal elements that he'd experienced in the home because he was with his siblings uh, there, I believe. But in, in its place, he would have had an existence of sheer, well, monotony punctuated with terror. There is an account where he describes living in fear of the, the door being unlocked and then his father would come in and he'd be beaten with an object such as a a poker or a belt, or in one case, I think a tutu rifle was broken over his back. And then his uh, father would leave with, uh, well, laughter, it seems. And he must have regarded himself, even in those days, as a real prisoner. He must have tried to figure what this was all about. 
You would certainly have had a lot of time to, to ruminate, to think in that kind of uh, impoverished environment. And then apparently he was only brought out to try and take part in a charade whereby his aunties or welfare officer were told about how great he was getting on and how happy his life was. To have been forced to participate in that really must have made him question any sort of sense of reality or must have questioned further any sense that other people cared or could be trusted. I think it's very likely that the abuse and the limitations of his life led him to feel very angry. And uh, also the fact, apart from the abuse, the fact that he was taken away from the uh, children's home, the orphanage where he'd lived the first few years of his life. That must have seemed like a betrayal. He must have wondered why that had taken place. And, well, he must have wondered why he was being subjected to such dreadful treatment now. So I think that would have left a legacy of anger, and often tied to anger is a sense of injustice, maybe a sense of wanting to turn the tables on an abusive world as well. I think the years with the nuns in the orphanage certainly seems to have been a, a positive influence on his social development. I mean, there, there are some accounts of him in later life or now actually having the capacity for ordinary, normal social interaction and actually being quite uh, engaging to speak to. I think that area really developed initially through those positive contacts in the, the orphanage. He had a settled, relatively stable existence in the orphanage and then these two characters who he's had nothing to do with for many years, probably can't remember at all, would then come. And uh, yes, it must have been quite difficult for him to make sense of that, especially being told that they were his family when he regarded the nuns as his real family. It must have been very difficult for him to make sense of going to the abusive environment. There would have been a very strong contrast with the more settled environment, the more nurturing environment of the children's home. And that's combined with the fact that, uh, apart from the deprivation of the children's home, he was subjected to this very punitive, abusive lifestyle, and very restricted in what he, can do, what he could do and what he had, and living with the ever-present threat of beatings, which he knew were going to come. So there must have been a really strong contrast between his uh, existence when he went back to his parents, the existence he'd known at the children's home. I think there may be an element of truth in the comments he made about if he'd killed his parents back in, I think it was 1970, he wouldn't have gone on to kill. I mean, it's one of those unknowables, really. Uh, best, it can only be highly speculative. However, if he had, in a sense, got it out of his system, this uh, really strong anger and sense of injustice towards his parents, given the right conditions 
following that, it might have been possible for his uh, social development to, well, to continue upon more normal lines. Issues of opportunity might uh, well have played a role in him not uh, killing his parents and killing others instead, in that uh, it seemed that the original offence did arise from a particular situational context where there was a trigger. He was working as a rent boy. He was uh, heavily into drugs and so forth. But uh, apparently his client, on one occasion, showed him some photos of children that he'd abused. And uh, I guess why would somebody do that? Well, possibly there was an element of uh, gloating about it, almost pride that the person had inflicted this suffering on children. And that must have had a very strong resonance with uh, Robert. And uh, it seems that at that point he just lost it and uh, really mounted quite a sustained and very serious attack till the person was killed. And after that, he didn't really have the opportunity to get at his parents because he went to Broadmoor and as a result of things that happened there, he went to Wakefield and uh, he's remained in the prison system, largely in solitary confinement ever since. It's his first murder in custody, I think took place in an environment where he was cut off from uh, staff who couldn't intervene, in fact. I think uh, it's been reported that at one point, him and Cheeseman, who he committed the offence with, actually raised the body so that, uh, so that staff would be able to see it. So it's almost a kind of taunt against the, the staff. It's showing what, uh, what he could do, an exercise of power to that extent. Um, but also when you've got two individuals, both with violent propensities, they can egg each other on. And also in Nine Hours, I think there was some suggestion that things might have started off fairly low-key, but escalated over the course of the Nine Hours, with the, uh, with the violence getting more and more extreme until eventually you move from torture to, I believe, breaking a plastic spoon and sticking it through the victim's ear to the brain which gave rise to the uh, untrue reports of cannibalism. People who do bad things sometimes believe they're doing it for the best of motives, and often with anger, even displaced anger, there can be a a sense of moral righteousness, a sense that the victim has done something wrong or the victim's a bad person and that somehow justifies them perpetrating assault, torture and eventually death. Deemed too dangerous to serve his whole life tariff in a normal cell, Robert Maudsley spends all but one hour a day locked in solitary confinement. His cell, nicknamed the Glass Cage, was purpose-built in the basement of Wakefield Prison. Maudsley was first convicted of the murder of John Farrell and sent to Broadmoor Hospital, where he and fellow inmate David Cheeseman killed another, David Francis. 
It was on conviction that he was sent to Wakefield Prison, where a year later, he would kill Salney Darwood and William Roberts in the same day. Oh, it seems that moving to, uh, to Wakefield would have been seen as a retrograde step, an impoverished environment, and also arguably out of step with the motivations behind the, uh, the offence that he had committed in the secure hospital. Uh, to go to a mainstream Victorian prison, uh, it certainly wouldn't have seemed to him as anything like progress, and the environment probably would have been relatively... Uh, austere and limited compared to what he was used to in the secure hospital. So it could be that if he'd uh, been retained in what should be a therapeutic environment of a, of a hospital, it might not have happened. It also raises the case, the question rather, did he see the uh, offences that he committed in Wakefield as a way of getting out of Wakefield? a kind of protest, a sign that he's not going to settle there. Maybe he thought it was going to get him removed back to a secure hospital, but uh, actually all it did was uh, mean that he was more closely confined than ever. Well, I worked uh, at Wakefield Prison not many years after, and it was a Victorian maximum security prison, dispersal prison it was called in, in those days. And facilities were limited I and mean, they still had slopping out. You didn't have your own toilet in your cell, basically. Uh, things like televisions, you'd have um, two or three per wing of about 140 prisoners and at any given time at least one wasn't working and you'd only watch in a TV room, which is rather a threatening place because wherever you sat, somebody would say, that's so-and-so's chair. And the food wasn't fantastic, it must be said. You had uh, quite a few staff who'd worked there for a long time, and you know, they were fairly local and they had no aspirations for promotion and that sort of thing. So sometimes it was talked about as being full of uh, the dinosaurs, on the other hand, there were also a lot of very dedicated and professional staff there who I think represented the best of the prison officer tradition. There were people who were, had a down-to-earth good sense and good humour, and they were usually very good at defusing difficult situations, and a lot of them had ex-forces backgrounds. They were quite good at sort of geeing people along or maybe giving them a bit of support if they were down. And they were very good at what used to be called man management. Um, but certainly there were limitations at that time, as there were, I think, throughout the prison system. This was in the years before the Wolf Report in the, the early 90s, where conditions improved significantly, where integral sanitation, you know, toilets in cells became much more the norm, for example, so conditions weren't great, but they weren't too sort of, uh, well, they weren't awful in the sense of uh, being abusive or completely squalid or that sort of thing. But certainly compared to the rest of the prison system at the time, they weren't uh, 
They weren't too squalid, they weren't inhumane, and actually some prisoners quite liked Wakefield because they felt safer there than they did at other places. They felt that the staff were in control. And another thing that I came to appreciate more subsequently was, uh, well, after Wakefield, I worked at Full Sutton, and there the architecture was built upon a sort of 1960s small is beautiful design, whereby they had uh, wings built around courtyards. Now, you've got wings built on courtyards, you've got blind spots at every corner, you've got stairwells, and all sorts of places where prisoners could be intimidated or, well, actually the victim of violence by other prisoners. At Wakefield, despite the fact that, of course, uh, Wardsley did kill twice there, generally speaking, visibility was a whole lot better in that uh, virtually anywhere on one of these big cathedral-like wings could be seen from virtually anywhere else. And a lot of prisoners, by and large, felt a lot safer in that kind of environment. Also, I mean, some prisoners didn't like the fact that there were a lot of sex offenders at Wakefield. Wakefield had quite a good record of being able to integrate sex offenders on normal locations on the wings, whereas in other places they'd have been, well, locked up for their own protection. And there were so many, and they were dealt with successfully you know, most of the time, that uh, people that wouldn't have felt safe elsewhere did feel that it was a more safe environment to be in. Now, okay, that's not foolproof or infallible, as the murder of the two prisoners by Maudsley showed. But it, apart from the fact that he might have taken exception to the, the sheer number of sex offenders on normal location there, um, it wasn't uh, regarded as too bad a place. I mean, it's difficult to answer the question of his precise motivation and why he committed the offences at that time you know, without talking to him about it. But it seems that quite likely that he was at Wakefield, he didn't really want to be there. He was probably surrounded with uh, people that had committed the sorts of crimes that uh, might have uh, reminded him of the abuse that he had suffered. Also, I think he was carrying around with him a, a lot of anger because of the past and maybe wanted to find expression to that. Maybe he thought that if he did this, committed the, uh, the murders, then he would be, um, be sent back to the secure hospital or to another location anywhere but Wakefield. I think he did on the day uh, in question um, make two paper coffins and put human hair in them, which seems to have almost a, a ritual significance to it. So maybe this was part of him psyching himself up to do what he did. I think it's likely that he wanted to have as much impact as possible and uh, there doesn't seem to have been entirely a, a loss of control involved. Now, quite extreme levels of violence seem to have been used on, on both victims, but uh, by all accounts, when he'd killed the second, he, uh, he went to the wing office and handed over his blade 
and that's when he said that there'd be two less for the roll call that day. Now, it could be that he'd got the pent-up aggression and anger out of his system by the time he'd killed the second. But given the fact that there was clear forethought, he'd made the paper coffins with the hair in and that sort of thing, it seems that there were at least elements of, uh, well, trying to achieve something, what's usually referred to as instrumental motivation, as well as any emotional uh, motivation behind it. It's a difficult question to answer and ultimately unknowable whether he would have committed those murders if he'd known the, uh, the consequences. Certainly, if it was the case that part of the motivation was to get himself removed from Wakefield, if he'd have known that uh, it wasn't going to achieve that, in fact, it was going to put him in a worse situation, that might have acted as a, an inhibitor. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, 
I think there's definitely an irony in his present situation where he is in solitary confinement and his existence is quite limited. And certainly parallels with his earlier life when he was confined by his parents. I suppose the difference is that he doesn't get somebody coming in uh, really severely beating him. But I suppose the reason that uh, he is kept in solitary confinement is that he did show 40 years ago that he's rather unsafe to have a normal location. However, however, I do understand that he also, over the years, has spent some time at uh, special units such as Parkhurst and Wood Hill, and I wonder really why he was moved back from those to, in effect, where he started, at the, the cage at Wakefield. And I did read an account by one of the uh, detectives who'd been involved in the case, in which the detective said that actually he seems quite a, a thoughtful, fairly engaging person, and clearly with a high level of intelligence and uh, quite developed cultural interests. So, especially given what we know about the profoundly negative effects of solitary confinement, there's a lot of research being done in America where it's not so unusual. Um, I do wonder whether it's strictly necessary and whether just for humanitarian reasons we should consider him being in an environment where there are more facilities, more things for him to do, and where there can be more contact with other people and perhaps even some uh, therapeutic engagement continuing with some work that he's done occasionally in the past where he's found it beneficial to be able to talk to people about his earlier life and uh, the way things have developed. And certainly he's, uh, he's getting older now by all accounts. He's not in, in good health. And um, I think maybe now is the time to start trying to introduce him to, uh, well, less impoverished conditions. And uh, I know a popular view is to say that, uh, well, somebody who's killed like that should throw away the, the key. But I think his situation is rather different to a lot of... Uh, serial killers, both in the, the nature of his, uh, of his victims, and this is not to discount the seriousness of what he's done, because uh, the victims probably still have families and that sort of thing, but seeing things in the overall context of his life and the circumstances of his offending, I wonder whether we as a civilised society ought to be thinking about helping him a bit more in his last, what's realistically are going to be his last few years, and it does raise the question does society owe that to him after the way society let him down when he was a child? In the next episode of Making a Monster, The Tapes we have an interview with forensic pathologist Dr Richard Shepherd. 
And you can watch Crime and Investigations Making a Monster, the TV show, Mondays at 9pm, with the episode focusing on Robert Maudsley now available to watch on demand. If you haven't already, please leave a review on your podcast app or get in touch on social media using hashtag makingamonster. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this latest episode. And finally, to find out more on the series, crimeandinvestigation.co.uk has profiles on all the serial killers featured in the show, alongside information on all our latest TV and podcast series. Making a Monster The Tapes features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by Joel Porter. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.